have some other announcements. David, you anticipated one of them. <laughs> um, we have been talking a little bit here the last couple of weeks since the uh, church leadership retreat about how God is doing some new things here. He's starting to stir up um, some energy and some ideas among people in the congregation. This is really important. If, if all of the ideas came from here, everything would fall to the ground because I'm not a superhero and I, can't, and I can't do everything. And also, this is what the church is for. The church is a body and everybody brings something to it and we all have ways that we can contribute and God is much more interested in having a community of his people doing things together that honor him and that promote his kingdom than just one person. So this is great, but it's still all in process, so a lot of it you're not seeing from here yet. Two of the things that um, came up at the retreat and that we've been talking about and praying about for a number of years, actually, and that you're starting to hear a little bit about our Bible study and the musical part of our worship. And so I just wanted to give you a little update on what's happening with those two things. Um, so we have the Saturday morning Bible study that's been going on for years and it is starting to grow. And I would encourage you, if you can make it to that study, you should. Um, I think sometimes they talk about the things that we're talking about in the sermon, which is great because then you can interact if something didn't make sense. You talk about it together. Um, there are also some other uh, people in this congregation who are interested in starting some new studies. Those are still figuring out the logistics and how, how and when and, and that kind of thing. So just hang in there, <laughs> stay tuned. But in the meantime, as you know, we're going to be doing a, uh, a, an extended sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. And there are some things about the Gospel of Matthew that kind of start at the beginning, and we'll talk about a little bit in the sermon today, and extend all the way through the book. And so I'm going to give you right now some questions, the youth group already has these questions because we talked about it together last week, um, that you can, there's even room in your bulletin, you can write this down right now, some questions to ask yourself before church on Sunday, because I email out the bulletin ahead of time, look up the passage and read the passage and then ask yourself these questions. First question. What Old Testament references does Matthew make or use in this week's passage? There, you might not find one in every single passage every week, but most of the weeks you'll probably find at least one, because Matthew refers to the Old Testament a lot. Second question. If I were reading this passage for the first time, Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. What would startle, surprise, or confuse me? And third question. In this passage, where do I see God using small, ordinary people, things, or circumstances to do or set up big, extraordinary things? I will post these in Facebook at some point, probably later today. Um, and we can actually have discussions on Facebook in writing during the week about this. If you're not able to make, if you're not, if you're
you're not a youth and you're not in youth group or you're not able to make the Saturday Bible study, we can actually have a, a written conversation on Facebook about these things if you if you want to. So that's the that's the sort of um, stopgap until these new Bible studies come up um, so we can continue to study the Bible together, interactively together. The second, oh yes, the third question was, where do I see God using small, ordinary people, things, or situations to do or set up big, extraordinary things? Yeah, that's why I'm going to post it again. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah, I'll put them up there. I'll put them on the main page too. Although someone may need to remind me because my remembering between now and the end of church is that's a that's a toss up. The next thing is the worship, the musical part of our worship. Um, there, I was told this morning there are a lot of there's still a lot of doths and thous in the hymns that we're singing today. Yep. Also, they're going to continue to be. We're not getting rid of the old hymns. Let me just say that because I think um, it's important to remember these hymns have been around in the church for a long time, and there's a reason. They tell the truth about God, and they are part of our history as the body of Christ. We're not getting rid of them. As far as incorporating new stuff or a variety of things, that needs to happen too. That's a work in progress. We, as David said, there's a group that's meeting on Monday nights, and they're practicing. Um, it's very amateur, but I think that worship is happening there. And if you want to be part of that, please, like, I, I'm not, I haven't discussed with the people that are organizing it um, what the social distancing measures are yet, so I can't speak to that from the front, but this is another place for worship and discipleship more than just Sunday mornings, and so um, if you're interested in that and you have that time available, I invite you to come, and we will be posting that in the bulletin in the announcements going forward. Um, just a little bit more about worship, though. It's important to incorporate and to continue to incorporate new styles that enable contemporary people like us to worship more easily. It is just as important to retain our older hymns. We need both. There are people for whom it is easier to worship with the newer songs, but there are also people for whom it is easier to worship with older songs, believe it or not. <laughs> I can name at least five of us right now in this room probably more, um, for whom the older hymns are a way that we actively connect with God. Also, the older hymns connect us with our church throughout the world, throughout time. The church is not a time-bound institution. We're still connected to the people in our past. We're actually going to talk about this in the sermon, too. Some music either old or new, is not going to really speak to everybody's heart all at the same time. That's okay because worship is a discipline before it becomes second nature. 
and everything that we learn from from God, the Spirit empowers it, but we have to discipline ourselves to read the Bible, we have to discipline ourselves to pray, we have to discipline ourselves to worship. Eventually, it's going to come second nature, and it's not really going to matter what style of music we're singing because you're connecting with God. But we have to practice. So if we're singing a song that doesn't really do it for you, well, first of all, it's not really about you. <laughs> it's about God. And, um, and so try to find a way to connect with God through that song anyway. Eventually, you'll actually be, it will be for real. We'll continue to update you. We'll you eventually in a few weeks or maybe months, you'll see some more people up here helping to lead new songs or old songs in different ways. I think it's exciting. Worship is important. Um, God is honored through worship and the kingdom is built through worship and, um, and defended through worship and protected through worship. This is where we get strengthened. This is actually how we fight the spiritual battles in our lives. So it's important, um, but it is going to take process. God doesn't. God does things really suddenly that He's been building up over time. So, so we're gonna we're gonna cooperate with God in this process, however long it takes. And then all of a sudden, it's gonna it's gonna bloom or explode or whatever whatever God's gonna do. Um, but it will be good. So, sorry, a little extra message today. <laughs> But, but I think it's important because this is about our whole community, and we need to continue to think about these things together and wrestle with them together. So, Good morning. How's everybody today? Good. Does anybody know what this thing is? A what? A whisk? Um, maybe, but no. Well, it's a piece of metal. It's actually, I think, one long piece of metal, and it's got a loop on each end and twisted in the middle, and then it's twisted in the middle to make a heart. And this piece actually slides. No ideas? All right, let me give you some clues. Any ideas now? Yes. These candles are wonderful, except when you try to light them when they get too low. Right? You ever try to do that? Trying to get it in there? It just doesn't work, does it? But this handy-dandy little gadget is perfect for that. So if you take a match and you stick it in these little corners here, this little thing, and slide this up as tight as you can, it lengthens the match. And then you can strike the match and light your candle without burning your fingers. Pretty handy dandy thing. It's about the only thing that it's good for. I've never actually tried to use it as a whisk. But I suppose I could try, um, although I'm not sure I really want to. But it has a purpose. Its purpose is to help me light my candle. And I was thinking this week about things that have purpose. And then I was thinking about Joseph and Joseph's purpose. 
why do we need Joseph in the story of Jesus' birth? Okay, he kept Jesus alive. What was that? Mary would have been stoned, well, to death. Um, <laughs> say it again. He needed a human father. There's something else that he needed. See, okay, we had the whole issue. God didn't need Joseph to make Jesus because the Holy Spirit took care of that. But he needed someone to help Mary raise him. And he also needed to have some sort of trade, I think, because after the, the section in the scripture where they talks about Jesus going to the temple at age 12, that's the last reference we have to anything about Joseph. So we don't know what happened to Joseph after that, but perhaps Jesus, being the oldest child, would have to step up and do something to help support the family. So perhaps learning the trade of carpentry from his father, uh, Joseph, would have been good for that. But there's one really important purpose for Joseph, and that was in the part of the first, the first chapter of Matthew that we didn't read today, where it traces Jesus' family tree, and Joseph was descended from David. And that was the important thing that we needed. His purpose was to connect Jesus to the line of David, which is what was promised in the scriptures in the Old Testament. If you look at the genealogy in Luke, you kind of get a slightly different version of the family tree. And from what I've read and studied, it looks like the, the Luke version follows Mary's line, which also includes him in the family line of David, blood-wise. But the lineage line the connection, when Joseph named Jesus Jesus, he was claiming him as his son and connecting him in that line to King David. So G Joseph had a purpose. He connected Jesus to King David. He provided uh, an earthly father, a guide for Jesus, gave him a trade, and he loved him. We have purposes too. God has created us each with a purpose. We may or may not know what our purpose is yet, but he's got a purpose for each one of us. We just need to listen. Joseph had made up his mind. He was going to say, well, I'm sorry, Mary, this isn't going to work, but I'll be nice and just do it quietly until the Lord, the angel said, no, don't be afraid. I've created you for a purpose, and this is the purpose that I have for you. So don't be afraid. Go ahead and marry Mary. Be the father of my son and will go well with you. So don't be afraid. When God leads you somewhere, he's got a purpose for you. And he will lead you through it and give you grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you do have a purpose for each and every one of us. We may or may not know what that purpose is now, but we know that you will reveal it to us in the right time. And you will give us the skills and the gifts to do whatever it is or be whatever it is that you are calling us to be. So we thank you for Joseph and his faithfulness to you and his faithfulness to Mary and to Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus is faithful to us and you are faithful to us. So we thank you in all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for today. Please open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear from you. And let it make a difference in our lives. In Jesus' name. How many of you know anything about your own genealogy? Why do it seems like there's a lot of people here, and um, it also seems like there are a lot of people out there, wherever that is, um, who are interested in finding out. If you don't know about your genealogy, there are all kinds of places you can send your DNA to, and they can look and see what ethnicities you come from, and and that kind of thing. What is it? that is so interesting about genealogies. They're complicated, okay. The, the genes that get passed down through the ages, yes, that is why it's called a genealogy, isn't it? <laughs> it is interesting to find out who came before you. I was actually kind of hoping Ray was going to be here today because I thought he might be interested in this and have something to say about it, but maybe next time. Anyway, um, my great-great-grandfather was a horse thief. And one of his sons, my grandmother's Uncle Sieb, um, shot his lover's husband in a street in the Wild West of Colorado. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, th so that's in my history. Um, these things, that kind of story makes for, for an interesting story. It's complicated, as Sandy said. It, it's interesting. It makes for, you, you could probably write a decent novel about it. Um, makes a good movie. But the real life fallout from that kind of lifestyle is rough. Uncle Steve ended up having to flee for his life because he was an adulterer and a murderer. He ran to California um, and spent the rest of his life washing dishes in a restaurant somewhere. He was completely cut off from the rest of his family, I think. So one person in the family maybe stayed in touch with him by letter. It might have been my grandmother. Um, but it didn't end up too great for Uncle C. And a lot of us have things like that in our past. Sometimes it's in our past. Sometimes that's us. Um, sometimes it's in our family history. Here's the thing. When God enters the family tree, something different, new, and good happens. So God entered my family tree on that, that part of my family tree, in Uncle Sieb's brother, my grand, my great-grandfather, James, I knew him as Grandpa Brobeck. I texted my dad last night, whose name is James. I said, what was Grandpa Brobeck's name? And he said, Jim. And I was like, oh, <laughs> why did I not know that? Grandpa Brobeck went to church one Sunday to pick up girls. And instead, he picked up the Holy Spirit and became a solid Christian my grandmother was his second child, and she was a solid Christian, and she met her husband, who also was, and then they had my dad, and he became a pastor, and now what, 
here's me. Um, <laughs> the Bible isn't kidding when it says that the sins of the father get passed down to the children, but God shows love to the thousandth generation of those who love him. And so we have my dad and me and countless other people and families like ours quietly serving God. We're not making names for ourselves. We're not famous, neither of us, um, none of us. But quietly serving God, if we do that, God can still establish his kingdom through not very impressive, not very special people because God entered the family tree. We can use, we, I mean anybody, can use our family history like a cage. And we can be caged in our family history and we can say, I, I'm stuck in this cage and I want to get out of it. And you can present the cage. You can, it can become the focus of your life. Or you can pretend it's not there. No, me? What? I'm not in a cage. I, I don't have anything to do with that past. It could be a really enclosed cage or it could be a big cage. We can make our cage quite fancy and quite comfortable and we can uh, talk about it. Either way, it's a cage. And in that cage, that is where, so we were talking about empire and, and kingdom last week, that is where empire starts, in the cage of our families, in the cage of our history. Sin starts there, envy, deceit, power plays, idolatry, all of that starts in our families. Good or bad. It starts in the home. It started with Cain and Abel. That was in their family, right? Neither airing our family's dirty laundry nor shoving it in the basement and locking the door is going to help free us from the cage of our past or from the way the world works. The only thing that's going to free us is when God is with us in our personal or community, church, city, nation, history. Community, we are part of our personal past and we're part of our community's past, good or bad, we're part of it. And good or bad matters less than whether and how we allow God to infiltrate our history. As we allow God to do that, he will connect us more closely to our heritage and at the same time free us from the cage of it. He will free us from the bondage of it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In fact, when the light shines in the darkness, the light becomes all the brighter. And so we meet Joseph today. He is from a line of kind of sketchy ancestors. I was going to try to read this whole genealogy to you. I didn't want to make Barb do it because, <laughs> although Maddie did a great job in his group the other day. Um, but I, I don't think I'll take the time. But if you have the Bible in front of you, you can look it up. You'll see some famous names in there. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course, and Judah, and Boaz, and Ruth, and King David. And then the names start to get unless you know the Bible super well, the names start to get less and less familiar as you go on. There's, there's Solomon and 
You might have heard of Hezekiah and maybe Zerubbabel, but this, it starts to peter out after a while. There are some interesting stories in this genealogy. Um, there are some good stories and some bad stories, usually to do with the same people. <laughs> David has some good and some bad. Um, there are somebodies in this family tree, and there are nobodies in this family tree. And God was in this family tree. But from a human perspective, the sins of the somebodies in that family tree in the end, led an entire people into exile, and most of them kind of became nobodies after that. So if you read through that genealogy and it says, it, then you get to the exile, and then you see Zerubbabel, and he's really the, there's a couple other names that are sort of familiar, but he's really the only one that's at all notable from the Old Testament. Everybody just kind of doesn't really count after that. But here's the thing. God had promised to bless the world through this people of Abraham, specifically through this line of David, and he never stopped planning to do that. In fact, all of this time, while all of these people are flying under the radar, there's no more kings in Israel, God is arranging still to fulfill his promises through a young teenage girl and an obscure craftsman. The obscure craftsman, of course, is Joseph. What do we know about Joseph? He's in David's bloodline. He's a carpenter or some kind of craftsperson. Yeah. He listened to God through angels. There are actually two stories. We'll look at the next one next week, I think. Um, where Joseph gets talked to by angels twice, and he listens both times. That's pretty impressive. But up until that point, we don't know much about him. The Bible doesn't tell us much about him. It doesn't tell us much about him after these stories either. So we need to talk a little bit about what Matthew emphasizes in his gospel. In the Gospel of Luke, as Barr pointed out, um, Luke gives us the Christmas story through kind of through Mary's perspective. But Matthew is writing specifically to persuade a Jewish audience that Jesus is the promised Messiah that they've been waiting for. That in Jesus, their scriptures, the whole thing, is fulfilled. And so that is why he starts his book with a genealogy. He doesn't even give it an intro. He just says, this is the genealogy of, and lists all these names. What he's saying by doing that is, hey, Jewish brothers and sisters, this is the pedigree of Jesus, who is the Messiah, our Messiah. This genealogy is a birth announcement for Jesus. Matthew is so convinced that there is an unbroken line from the Hebrew scriptures all the way through into the life of Jesus that he is writing an entire book about it. But he, the reason he's writing this book is because he knows that even though he's that convinced, a lot of his fellow Jews are not. And he really cares about them, and he really wants to bring them into this part of their story, too. Part of the reason that many of the Jewish people at that time, and to this day, don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is because even though Jesus fulfilled 
all of the Old Testament scriptures, all of the Hebrew scriptures, the way that he, he even, even verses that weren't seen at the time as prophecies, like the one that is quoted in this passage, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we can call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It is unlikely that people before Jesus saw that verse as a prophecy, because it's part of a story about Isaiah and his wife having a son. And so they maybe didn't think about that as a prophecy, but Matthew's saying, yes, it's about Isaiah and, and his son, but actually, Jesus fulfilled this too. Jesus completed this. You didn't know it was a prophecy, but the whole Hebrew scriptures is so much about Jesus that even this part is about Jesus. So even though Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament scriptures, he did it in ways that nobody expected. And so Matthew tells his story, the story of Jesus, in the same way that King David wrote Psalm 8 that we talked about last week. In Psalm 8, David says, God is our majestic king. And in Matthew, Matthew says, Jesus is our long-awaited anointed king. And in Psalm 8, David says, creation displays God's grandeur, and yet God establishes his kingdom through, as the Bible Project guys say, the helpless dirt creatures and baby babble. And Matthew says, Scripture displays Jesus' grandeur as the anointed one, yet he establishes his kingdom through nobodies and baby babble. Here's the thing. Joseph has a pedigree, but no one would have heard of him or his immediate ancestors if it weren't for baby babble. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. And then Matthew tells us she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. First of all, we need to understand that betrothal in the New Testament times meant basically Mary and Joseph were married. The level of their commitment was so um, formalized and kind of legalized that they, to break that commitment was to break a marriage. The only thing that was different was they weren't yet living together and they weren't to be frank, sexually active. So, she's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Does Joseph believe that it's by the Holy Spirit? We don't know. I always assumed he didn't, although while I was working on this, it started to occur to me that he might have actually believed her. If he didn't believe her, if he thought she was pregnant, but it wasn't by the Holy Spirit, then that means she either cheated on him or she was raped. And either way, she's lying. But the thing that makes her lie even worse is she's blaspheming. She's attributing her sin or her really bad situation or her an abusive situation to God. She's saying, I'm pregnant, God's responsible, and if she's lying, that's a, that's a huge lie. Unlike some of his ancestors, Joseph, as Matthew tells us, was faithful to the law. This is an important detail for Matthew's first readers. They are Jewish people who are concerned that Jesus, that following Jesus meant abandoning the law of God. Joseph is in the right lineage and he's faithful to the law. Matthew's being careful to point that out. Don't discount this story just because of this weird little account. 
Joseph is faithful to the law, and he's in the line of David. So, according to the law, Joseph is under no obligation to marry a faithless woman. If she cheated on him, he does not have to marry her. And if she were raped, what, according to the law, what they should have done was look for her assailant and made him marry her. That sounds really problematic to modern ears, and it kind of is, but that's another conversation for another time. For now, just keep in mind that those are the, those are basically the options if Mary is lying. More important, if Joseph didn't do something about this situation, he would be implicated in her blasphemy, and that would be a serious offense against the law for sure. She's, she's saying God's responsible, and if he doesn't do something about that, he's also responsible in saying that God is responsible, if it's not true. If he believes her, that's a whole other situation. If she says to him, Joseph, I'm pregnant, it's by the Holy Spirit, and he trusts her enough to think that somehow she's telling the truth, unlike his others of his ancestors except for Boaz, Joseph also is committed to her well-being. He doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. And if he believes what she's saying, the fact is she has experienced something that no human being has ever experienced before or since. And Joseph would have no way of knowing if he's even allowed to marry her or touch her or be involved with her in any way. When humans come into contact with the vessel of God, they die in the Old Testament. There's a story about this in 2 Samuel 6. Um, they're trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant of God, which is supposed to be God's throne. Um, they're trying to bring it back into the people of God, and it topples off a wagon, and some guy who's trying to help goes to push it back so it doesn't fall on the ground. His contact with it kills him. So, even if Joseph believed Mary is somehow pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he might be a little nervous about getting close to her because she's carrying God now. Uh, <laughs> no thank you. What am I dealing with here? So, this makes the angel's reassurance all that, more, that much more reassuring, eventually. Okay, so we know Joseph is a good guy, he's faithful to the law, he's considerate of Mary. Whether or not he believes her story about the Holy Spirit, how is he supposed to feel when an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. How is he supposed to feel about that? <laughs> so say he didn't believe her in the first place. And the angel tells him this. This is supposed to reassure him. Oh, so she didn't cheat on me. She actually is pregnant by God. That's, I'm supposed to not be afraid about that? Or say he does believe her. What is conceived in her is, so this is another way that you could read this. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid because of that. Why not? 
give me, give me something. Mary, interestingly, has the same reaction in Luke 1 when the angel tells her that she's favored by God. She is greatly troubled, it says, which I feel like is probably an understatement. God with us is no joke. God with us does crazy things. The, the verse that quotes Isaiah, um, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Really, God with us is the promise of the whole Old Testament. John Golden Gay, interestingly, not in a commentary about Matthew, but in a commentary about Joshua, which is the same name as Jesus, says, in modern English, I will be with you, is inclined to suggest that we will have a sense, he means a feeling, that God is with us. So we'll, if, if we hear... If we read God says, I will be with you, we, we imagine that we're going to feel something, like something comforting, like God is patting us on the back or something, or maybe giving us a hug. We'll, we'll have a feeling that God is with us, but the Bible suggests it means something objective, not subjective. So it's not, God being with us is not just about how we feel. It's just true, whether we feel it or not. And he, said, he goes on to say, God with us means God will make sure things work out. I don't remember if you, I don't know if you remember from last week in the Psalm 8 video, but the, the Bible Project guys said that Psalm 8 has, is written in an inclusio. And I'll feel smart to go. Inclusio. Um, it starts with, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and then it ends with, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Matthew also has an inclusio. Matthew 1, 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 28, 18, and 20, the second part of verse 20, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew is intent to show us that the story he is telling is part of the same story God has been telling all along. God with us, helpless dirt creatures who he is always inviting to be with him too. And so insignificant Joseph is, an, is important in this story. He is as crucial as Mary. The angel calls him son of David before Jesus is ever referred to as son of David. That's one of Jesus' actual titles. The angel calls Joseph that first. It is, like Barb said, it is through him that Jesus' genealogy is reckoned. This Through this man who respected God and his wife enough to want to do the right thing no matter what the right thing ended up being. Here's a little side note. Adoption is for real. I don't know if anybody in here has adopted a child or is adopted, but the Bible is really 
clear that adoption is a real thing. You are, if you are adopted, you are really the child of your adoptive parent. If you are adopting a child, that child is really yours. God allowed his only begotten son to be adopted by a human man so that through his only begotten son, we humans can be adopted by God and call him our father. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph gets to name the baby as his own son. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus is born, unlike what he or we might have expected, Joseph gets to have a normal marriage with Mary. Marriage is a gift from God. God wants his, wanted his son to be parented by two parents in a real marriage. Partly, I suspect, because Jesus is getting married to his church. That is where this whole story is leading, eventually. And Jesus came as a human, needed to be raised by humans, in a human, a good, respectful, functioning human marriage. As Joseph and Mary accepted Jesus into their lives, we talk about accepting Jesus into our hearts or into our lives, Joseph and Mary had to accept him in a really, um, in a really physical way. They were accepting God with them. And as they did that, things flipped upside down but also right side up. Parenting the Messiah, parenting the Son of God, was not an easy life for either of them. But it was the first big step in God making sure things work out. Our, our ways of making sure things work out, we would like to just kind of zap everything and make it all better. Um, or... We would like to limit other people's free will. This is what empire tries to do. And I mean, humanly speaking, no matter whether you are Republican or Democrat or whatever, whatever label you want to put on yourself, humanly speaking, this is what we try to do. We want to instantly fix everything. And the best way we know how to do that is to shut down anybody that doesn't think the same as us. This way of making things work out is a quick fix. There is no hard change, doesn't actually make anything work out, and the image of God is completely ignored. This way of making things work out is about my or my community's fame or greatness or power or control. But God's way is the way of Psalm 8, verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. God made himself vulnerable, and he made Joseph and Mary vulnerable too. Mary had to risk being misunderstood, 
isolated and shamed. And then later, um, seeing her son persecuted, tortured, and killed. Joseph risked being misunderstood and sidelined. This seems upside down. Why would God ask people to go through this? Why would God choose to have his son born in such questionable and confusing circumstances? Why would he allow the possibility that he could be rejected? And yet, it is in this way that God turns the world back right side up. The world in which his earthy dirt creatures get to participate in making him king again. And the least important, become the greatest. Through obedience that is faithful to the law and considerate of other people, yet takes risks, even the risk of feeling not of appearing not to be faithful or considerate, God turns the world back right side up. Joseph and Mary did nothing that contradicted the law of God and nothing that took advantage of each other. But to anybody outside of their little dynamic, it would have looked like they had. This is the kind of obedience that God's people are often called to. Joseph, but they, but they were obedient. They did not disobey the law, and they did not take advantage of each other or anyone else. When we allow God with us into our lives, all the way into our past, into our family tree, into our church's history, into our worship, we can be sure that regardless of what happens to get there, or how long it takes, or what it looks like to a watching world, or how upside down our world feels in the process, God will be with us, and God will make sure things work out to bless us and to bless the world. Lord, thank you that you are with us. It is a serious thing to be in your presence and to draw close to you, and yet that is what you want. We pray that we will never lose our sense of awe at your love, and that we will also continue to push forward towards you, become more like you, and draw others to you as well. In Jesus' name.